I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kia ora, I'm Ben Abram, the British High Commissioner's Climate Change Advisor, and welcome to our podcast, Tea with the High Commission. I've got some tea. And let's have some podcast. So for this episode, I'm here with some pretty inspirational young Kiwi who are working to help address climate change. Yep, that old chestnut that keeps me in a job, unfortunately, I wish it didn't, uh, but it's pretty important. And in November, the UK hosted COP26 in Glasgow. And so that is the 26th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Yes, it's definitely a mouthful, but the COP is the most important climate change summit on the annual calendar where global negotiations are held and efforts are made to coordinate and accelerate the international response to global heating. And at COP26, many things were achieved, like finalizing the rules for implementing the Paris Agreement, 140 countries updating their climate targets, and massive mobilizations of countries, cities, businesses, and finance committing to align with net zero emissions. But still, you know, there is a lot more to be done and gaps remain, both in terms of ambition and certainly action on the ground. The COP meetings have also become major gathering moments for the youth climate movement to push for ambitious outcomes, to coordinate, build and grow the movement and share lessons. And joining us today are NG Johnston, Phoebe Nicolau and Nina Jeffs, young Kiwi who went to COP26 to share their experiences and thoughts on how the summit went and what comes next. Inji, Phoebe, Nina, no my hearty my, thank you all for joining us today. I was pretty lucky to speak to some of you before you went. Uh, and a lot of things have happened. You know, there's been, you know, the whole COP26 summit, more things since, more waves of COVID. And I'm really excited to have you here and hear a little bit more about uh, what has happened since then. But firstly, I wanna talk about why you went. Um, I've previously gone to COPs before, including as a, as a youth activist myself, and I know it can be expensive, far away, take a lot of time, be quite uncomfortable sometimes. And obviously this year um, with COVID as well, potentially more, more dangerous and, and more risky. So I'd really love to hear, to hear from you all. Why did you go? Why is it important for youth to attend COP and be at COP26? So I went because I'm, well, I'm privileged enough to have two homes in this world of ours. Um, I am originally from Greece, born and raised there. Um, and I'm also half Kiwi um, and whangai Māori to iwi and Taranaki. Um, and Unfortunately, both of those countries are already facing the devastating and heartbreaking effects of climate change. So literally both of my homes are already being destroyed by this. Um, and that's something that's upsetting on a personal level. It's um, upsetting just as a member of our community and of the two communities so that's why I went personally um I I was lucky enough that I could 
I think if you you have the chance and the privilege to be able to go, it's so important um, to actually make the most of it because what we found on the ground is still, even at COP26, the largest group delegation that was fossil fuel lobbyists. And I think, I mean, it's it's really, um, you know, quite often a cliche that youth, or it's to, to say that youth is our future and that's our lives and livelihoods on the line with climate change. But I think, you know, that is so true. And actually the, the on the ground reality when you are faced with a lot more powerful resistance to some of the, the futures that we, you know, want to be able to create and have for ourselves, I think that just makes it a very, you know, active personal decision. Um, um, able to, if you can, um, to get there um, and make the most of it. Because, yeah, I mean, these, as we all know, the decisions made today really do affect um, the, us for generations to come. And I think um, once you know about these kind of issues, it can be really hard to to not, um, yeah, try to be part of that conversation and really do all you can um, to make some change. Does that ring true for you too, Nina? Yeah, definitely. And I think adding on to that as well, going to COP together as a group, sort of our overall aim was to try to build relationships with key climate justice stakeholders, because there's a whole ecosystem of people working on climate justice from all kinds of different perspectives, you know, from indigenous communities, from all over the global south, um, people working on it from a gender angle, from a trade unions angle, you know, there are so many different perspectives on it. And so we wanted to build relationships with those stakeholders and act as kaitiaki of those relationships um, for future delegations of youth from Aotearoa because we know that we were really privileged to be able to go at all and the number of, of participants, um, civil society participants, um, you know, from New Zealand was very limited and also um, it, it's the number of civil society participants um, from Indigenous communities and Global South communities was really um negatively impacted by uh, vaccine inequity and the COVID pandemic mm. and just all kinds of <laughs> problems related to that. And the other yeah. thing, which I think sort of can act as a barrier for young people's participation is that these negotiations are not very uh, accessible um, in the sense that they're not very transparent and there's a lot of jargon. It can be very technical and we wanted to try to share knowledge on how these processes actually work on our, we, so we created social media channels and things to try and um, mm. break that down. And um, I think in general, that lack of accessibility feeds into something Phoebe's talked a lot about before, which is the democratic deficit around climate change, mm. which is that young people just in opinion polls all over the world care more about climate change but they're less likely to vote um, or just have a say in decision-making. Yeah, in terms of showing up and, and making our voices heard in these uh, political forums, it's it's really important. Yeah, that's, that's so true. You know, the, the, those outcome documents and things that they write, I think there's, you know, a small subsection of extremely nerdy climate policy people who absolutely love it. But I think for, you know, the vast majority of the population, they're just incredibly inaccessible to, um, to understand some of those things that are being written. Um, I want to come back to what you were talking about in terms of the civil society that was there and, and how they were structured and, and how that was organized. But just wondering for our listeners, you were talking about um, climate justice and working to build bridges with other climate justice stakeholders. Could you just give us a quick little description of what climate justice is to you? Uh, I suppose the underlying principle of how I understand climate justice is that um, the impacts of climate change fall disproportionately on um, groups of people that did the least to contribute to it. 
Um, and mm. that's actually recognized within international climate change law and architecture. Um, and so the idea of justice is uh, basically working to um, support those communities most affected, ensure that they have the support they need, possibly the compensation they need when it comes to the whole loss mm. and damage agenda and mm. um, having those people most affected by climate change, like lead solutions and lead decision-making and having yeah. them front and center. Uh, what I would like to do is just to hear a little bit about um, just a, a very brief summary of kind of your own personal experience at COP26 and a little bit about what you were focusing on. Because I know you all sort of um, had your own priorities and areas that, that you were working on um, and tell us kind of what you did. And maybe was there anything that particularly surprised you as, as you worked on those issues? Nina, if we come to you, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you focused on at, at COP26? Uh, my main focus was on actually climate change and sort of human rights and gender equality, because at the moment I'm doing uh, policy research into climate change and gender equality. And uh, so that meant sort of following the negotiations on gender um, mm. and the gender day sort of celebrations uh, and sort of events around that and really getting involved with the women and gender constituency, which is similar to the youth constituency, but focused mm -hmm. on feminist action uh, for climate justice. Uh, so that was a large element of what I was um, engaging with. One thing that was really interesting uh, in terms of gender uh, and climate change is the issue of gender responsive climate finance, which I feel wasn't necessarily uh, resolved at COP26, and it's definitely ongoing. But um, essentially, the term gender responsive climate finance basically means climate finance that takes gender into account and actually seeks to promote gender equality while mm. working on climate change objectives. Mm. Um, so uh, so it's, a, it's a topic that people are increasingly interested in. And the reason for that is that um, a lot of women's uh, women-led and feminist organizations working at a local level actually do a lot on environmental issues, especially in the global south. Uh, but they really struggle to get access to climate finance from these really big sort of multilateral climate funds or from governments. And so there are ways to sort of facilitate their access that would make a really big difference in terms of helping people to scale up that action. And the women and gender constituency drew a lot of attention to this issue. They had an amazing celebration of um, these kind of projects that needed additional support called the Gender Just Climate Solutions Awards. Mm. And there's a report on that. It's all online and I'd recommend people to check it out if they're interested. Um, so on Gender Day, a bunch of different governments pledged increased gender responsive climate finance or increasing their just general financial commitments to that, including the UK government. But I think there's, there's still a really big gap um, to be met. So that's definitely mm. going to be something going forward uh, to COP27. It's super interesting. I think gender responsive climate finance sounds like a sounds like a winner, both finance for climate change and for gender, and also having almost a double climate dividend. I know, you know there's been a lot of work done by groups like Project Drawdown and others sort of highlighting how gender equality can actually be in and of itself a really powerful tool for reducing emissions and, and addressing climate change. So there seems to be a lot um, wrapped up in that. It sounds really exciting. Yeah, definitely. I think it is it is a win-win. And I mean, obviously, we should be supporting gender equality in and of itself, but it, 
mm. it doesn't it doesn't uh, hinder the cause that there's a lot of evidence that promoting gender equality helps with dealing with the climate crisis. So yeah, I think they are really deeply interlinked issues. And if there are ways to address them together, or mm. if there are already, you know, plenty of women uh, leading solutions on this issue, then, you know, why not support them to do that? Angie, coming to, to you, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you focused on uh, and what were uh, um, any highlights or surprises for you in, in your areas of focus at COP26? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I'm doing my PhD at Vic at the moment. I'm in law faculty there. And so going into COP, my, <laughs> my focus was um, looking at the kind of legal elements of what was being agreed and negotiated. My, my research kind of looks at like how these new emerging laws or principles and policies that are kind of being declared can actually become part of climate law and ultimately be binding to have some of those outcomes that, you know, I've already mentioned about how important it is for adequate financing and for climate justice um, to be realized. And so going into COP, I kind of had this legal hat on and kind of trying to keep an eye on different negotiations. But obviously the Article 6 ones really stood out as um, the most important legal rules that were going to be mm. adopted at COP and, and especially a place where, um, yeah, obviously the, the changing of one word um, or the you know, non-exclusion of one term can make a huge difference. And so that's, um, yeah, un, and it was an unplanned <laughs> major focus for, um, for the two weeks. And so, um, you know, the, what really surprised me as part of that was actually because, you know, they were really technical negotiations and, um, yeah, it can be really an off-putting area, especially because, you know, they've been under negotiation um, basically since Paris Agreement was, um, you know, agreed back in 2015. And I think, um, you know, from outsiders, particularly from youth perspective, it's not an area that, um, for example, Yango had actually been involved in before. Uh, but there we kind of yeah, created this group and really focused on it because we realized that actually so few people are tracking the specific negotiations. And so there's, you know, there's a risk there in that the rules are being developed without civil society participation and oversight and transparency. But more importantly, there's also a really big opportunity to actually, you know, to meet the negotiators and to actually um, tell them directly what, you know, youth um, think should be incorporated into the rules and how important getting these rules right are, given that they're not going to be up for renegotiation until 2027, when some of us, <laughs> including me, won't be able to legitimately call ourselves youth anymore. So um, that was probably the biggest, yeah, surprise for me. And so now COP26 is, is a little bit behind us. We've had some time to kind of rest and reflect. And I think a lot of people are already looking ahead to uh, COP27 and everything that 2022 has in store. I was just wondering, um, uh, for any of you who, who've had any, any reflections, looking back now, how would you, we've talked a bit about some specific areas you've each focused on, but looking back at the overall picture of COP26 at Glasgow, how would you sort of evaluate its success or or failure in certain areas. I I know I'm in the minority in this in a lot of respects, but I think actually in a lot of ways it was um, a substantive success at least. Like I think it showed there's this whole lot of latent momentum that's been building and building, and particularly in light of 
you know, we've had COVID, a lot of um, countries in looking to rebuild have actually realized, you know, and wanted to take a, a green recovery route. And that all of this is combined to, like you said at the start, to, you know, 140 new pledges, a lot of new money being put on the table and talk about, you know, things like the energy transition, which helps address some of those climate justice issues and actually trying to say that, you know, recognizing that climate change is truly a global issue. And I think, um, you know, the flip side of that and what we also saw at Glasgow, which was awesome, is a really strong um, civil society presence outside of, you know, the, the formal negotiating rooms and formal negotiating mm -hmm. space. And so there was a lot of, you know, there's people's climate um, movement and conference. And, you know, I think that really um, highlighted that, uh, yeah, Glasgow meant that, you know, no longer is COP26 this bubble where previously negotiators might have been able to, to go there and, and, you know, work quietly on some work and, you know, bring that back to their government. It is now a whole of society issue and all of society is, you know, paying attention and watching what's going on there. So I think, you know, that was actually reflected, for example, in Article 6, the fact that for the first time in you know, six or seven years that something actually got passed and that, you know, in some respects, um, there was advances that no one could even, you know, foretell that would be possible even a year ago, two ago. So I think, um, in this, you know, in a lot of substantive ways, things got pushed forward. As we've said, there's a lot of important issues on the table, like loss and damage um, coming up for Egypt in November. I would say, like, I agree with Engie in the sense that there was a lot of, there were a lot of, um, announcements and commitments mm. um for example there were a lot of sector deals which was yeah. you know a really big focus of the uk presidency so sort of groups of countries coming together to pledge action on um phasing out coal on protecting forests um and things like that but what ma matters most is that those those pledges are actually integrated into domestic policy and mm. and implemented and similarly um many countries came forward with net zero targets which is great but the most important thing is that those um are actually integrated into countries nationally determined contributions which is their official targets and that they're implemented in their domestic policies and that you know people make good on their word right so there was a great level of ambition in some ways um but but even so i think there is still more to be done on that um countries agreed to come back to egypt at the egypt um negotiations and submit more ambitious goals for their emissions reduction on the other side of things there were some areas where there wasn't quite as much ambition or some countries hadn't made good on their promises that they had already made. So in large part that is uh, developing country, uh, sorry, developed countries um, who'd committed a hundred billion dollars uh, per year in climate finance. Um, uh, also there's a huge funding gap in terms of adaptation finance. And of course there's the loss and damage issue that still needs resolving. So I think in the next few months, there's a lot to be done in terms of putting money on the table, getting policies implemented and seeing real change. I think, I think that's exactly right, Nina. You know, we've, there's been a lot of talk about 2022, you know, needing to be kind of a year of action, a year of delivery, and, and there's a lot riding on that. And just, just as one final question as we, we wrap up, and I'll start with, with, with you, Nina, and then come back through um, Phoebe and Ingie to, to close us off, is, you know, given all of this, you know, it's pretty, pretty amazing that you've been able to go to COP26 and bring some of these experiences 
back because I think it's can be pretty far away and disconnected for for a lot of New Zealanders, young and old. Um, but what would your advice be to to a Kiwi, to a young Kiwi in particular, who cares about climate change? They know a lot do, but doesn't really know what they can do about it. What would your advice be? Yeah, I think I think that's a really important question. And what I would say is the first thing is find people who also care about climate change um, because there'll be ways you can collaborate with them based on your uh, interest and your skill set, uh, which will mean that you can like contribute to, to um, climate action in an effective way. If you were just trying to work on it by yourself, um, you'll probably get quite frustrated and upset and you're probably not going to have much impact. So I think talking about it with people and connecting with other people and working with them on it. Um, and I think that's also really important because, you know, it's it's a very intense issue to be working on, you know, emotionally um, and, and having that support and community is really important as well. Um, and I would say when you're working in community with others, you can then look to um, political and sort of structural um, challenges and solutions. Um, of course, you know, um, making personal changes in your life is, is great and a great place to start, but, you know, um, climate change is really such a huge um, structural sort of um, economic, uh, political, environmental issue that um, I think it's important to actually put pressure on governments and companies where you can. And again, that's something that you can do in, in community. Love it. Phoebe? I 100% agree with Nina. This was definitely not um, an individual uh, challenge, an individual task. Um, so yeah, I guess my advice would be don't don't feel like you have to be perfect because it's impossible. This is a um, what feels like an imp impossible challenge that world leaders are struggling to face. Um, so definitely don't take it on by yourself. Um, mm. Also, I think what is quite a challenging task is. Um, a citizen is just staying informed um mm. knowledge is power and you know in a democratic society having knowledge is extremely important so that you can use your vote to make a difference you can use your vo voice to make a difference protest you know make yourself heard um and if you know what you're fighting about and um yeah that that will help the cause definitely. Brilliant. Angie? Awesome. I think I have um, two main points. I think to start with is that change starts really, really small. And like for me, it was at my high school down in Dunedin and managing to convince the school to turn off the coal boiler for one day, no heating, no lights, no anything, no power day, um, to actually start the conversation about how, you know, we're Was it in winter or is oh, that in yeah. summer? Honestly, you know, the unions got involved, a lot of people, but it happened, went ahead. 
Um, and in using that money, and also coinciding with like a mufti day to be like, right, well, if people are going to be cold, they can wear extra layers. I mean, we're all used to that as Kiwis, right? So um, change starts small and that um, exercise of, yeah, getting out of your comfort zone and putting, um, yeah, really not being afraid to put your vision into practice. And on that first point, um, there's a really cool opportunity for Rangatahi right now. Blake Inspire is accepting applications for their, uh, what used to be called the Young Environment Leaders Forum. Um, which I did 10 years ago now. And it's just, that was the real launch pad for building that community of environmental advocacy and, and having that, that wider support around you and putting some of those change-making ideas in practice. Um, and I'd also like to say that in terms of um, the COP processes that we've been talking about today, you definitely do not need to, to be at COP or, um, or be in any kind of proximity to these kind of circles to, to actually be start getting involved. Um, and so we are leaving our social media platforms, Young Kiwis and Climate up. So if anyone has um, any questions about how they can get involved in Youngo or in any other aspects, um, they're more than to reach out. So that's on Instagram and Facebook um, in particular. And I'm sure any uh, one of us three as well would be um, happy to be approached. Uh, and as part of that, we're actually putting together a capacity guide um, that's you know very COP specific about our experiences there and how it operates and functions. But more fundamentally, that can, um, yeah, it's used in there for um, Aotearoa uh, to, as a resource to kind of just really show how people um, can actually be a part of, you know, these big broad processes like COP and actually make a, make a difference. Brilliant. I think there's no better way to leave it than that. NG, you've wrapped it up perfectly. NG, Phoebe, Nina, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti Anou.